I don't suppose that there's been any series that I have preached since I have been here that I have enjoyed more than the favorite Bible passages. So many of you have over the past several months given me what were your favorite passages. And tonight we're going to focus our attention on the one that Brother Bruce read to us from Revelation chapter 21 and verse 7. There are some great passages in the book of Revelation. I've had to resist the temptation myself to say, that's a good one, but let me add this one and this one and this one to it. And I suppose that were I to say I'm going to use all my favorite ones, we probably would never finish this series. But it is a book of hope. The book of Revelation, many people look at it as the mysterious book, the one full of symbols and some things that are difficult, but it's a book of hope. And you would expect a book of hope to have a lot of favorite passages to be contained in it. Sadly to say, many find the final section of the book of Revelation as a place of speculation. And you find people coming up with all kinds of strange doctrines from it, but that doesn't necessarily have to be the case. You can read the book of Revelation from chapter 1 through chapter 22 and read it understanding it's a book of symbols and you can get the message from it. I will tell you that if you'll have you a good study Bible, that is one that has parallel passages in it, you'll find many of these teachings having their symbols wrapped up in Old Testament uh, points. And so tonight we're going to look at chapter 21. We're specifically going to look at verses 1 through 8 because that's the context of this passage. And I'd like for you to keep your Bibles open there because we're going to look at three things. We're going to look, first of all, at the context. We'll look at verses 1 through 6 and then verse 8 together with it. And we'll see the context in which verse 7 appears. Then we'll talk about verse 7 as being the culmination of what all this is looking forward to, the the focus, if you will, of the passage, and then finally the comfort that it provides to each and every one of us who are Christians. Let's begin with it, and if you'll notice, verse 1, he will talk about the new heavens and the new earth. Those are phrases, or that phrase signifies a major change. In fact, if you want to read about it, you'll notice here he says, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. Now I can go to the Old Testament, and I can recognize that Isaiah used this terminology. For him, the great significant change was from that of the Old Testament system to the coming of the kingdom, the New Testament. And that signaled a major change for the world. There's so many aspects that would make that true. It came from a a covenant which could not provide full forgiveness because it didn't have the perfect blood of the sinless Son of God. But it also reflected a change from being just uniquely for the Jewish people to being for all nations. And there's two passages, Isaiah 65 and 66, which focus our attention there. And there Isaiah says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered nor come to mind. 
I'm going to reserve that discussion for just a few moments from now. But you go to chapter 66 and verse 22. For as the heavens, new heavens and new earth, which I will make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your descendants and your name remain. God wanted them to understand there's something going to be ushered in that's going to be new, but you have to remember it's for you people and you will enjoy it. Now, when I go to the New Testament, I find the same terminology used not only by John here in the book of Revelation, but Peter uses it too. And just like John, the great significant change for him was not Old Testament, New Testament, but is after the resurrection. Notice with me, Second Peter 3, beginning with verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conduct and godliness? Dropping down to verse 13. Nevertheless, according to his promise, we look for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. You see, for Peter, like John, they're looking forward to the coming of the one that will supersede this physical earth, this physical heavens that we have above us. But notice with me again, the latter part of verse 1, also there was no more sea. And I think as most of us read this, we say, well, the earth is gone and so the oceans are gone. But you have to remember you're reading a symbolic book. And the sea was often a symbol from which evil would arise. For instance, again, in the book of Isaiah, chapter 57 and verse 20, he said, But the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest. Waters cast up mire and dirt. I never will forget the vacation we took several years ago. Caleb went with us. We went to the ocean in Panama City. And when we got there, there was the algae that had come in. And probably for 20, 30, maybe 50 yards out into the ocean was nothing but this green, bright green oatmeal is what I'd call it, ugly. And it smelled awful. It churned up all that from the ocean floor and brought it into the uh, shoreline. You have to understand the ocean sometimes can bring in some awful nasty stuff. That's the picture that Isaiah was trying to give us. Well, you have to realize as you're studying the book of Revelation that the beast, the symbol of evil there, also came up from the sea. In chapter 13 and verse 1, Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw the beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. So you get in your mind, there's a new heavens and a new earth. The first heavens and the first earth are gone. And the sea is no more. The source from which evil arises, it's gone as well. It served its purpose. It had a place. 
But just like Hades and death, he gave up the dead who were in it. In chapter 20, verse 13, the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged each one according to his works. I think you're beginning to get the picture now as you start Revelation chapter 21 that he's looking at a time past this earth, a time past where you and I are now living. But look with me now at verses 2 and 3 as we look at this context. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. And he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. There's at least a couple of things to notice here. The heavenly city of God. When I think about Jerusalem, I think about that city that's in Israel. I think about the history of that place, how that at one time that is where the temple stood. Before the temple stood the tabernacle. It was that city where God had said, this is where I want my people to come and to worship before me. A special place because God made it special. But here he's not talking about that Jerusalem. He's talking about a new Jerusalem. And he says it comes down from above. It's heavenly. Listen to Revelation 3 and verse 12. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. He shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from God, and I will write on him my new name. You see, it's a new place. But what makes this place special here is that it is representative of being, as he describes here, like a bride adorned for her husband. And you see, John weaves this, if you will, throughout the book of Revelation as well. And I just want to pull one passage out. Chapter 21, verse 9. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full, filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked with me saying, Come and I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. The Lamb is Jesus. The bride of the Lamb is the church. You say, well, I don't know how you get that. You go to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through verse 34. He talks about husbands loving their wives and wives being in submission to their husbands. And you may tend to think that that passage is all about the relationships of husbands and wives, but you get to verse 32 and he says, This mystery is great, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. The church is the beautiful bride of Christ. So now here's the heavenly Jerusalem. It's coming down from heaven and it is occupied by the saints, by the people of God. But then he gives the picture of a tabernacle. And for every Jewish person you would think back to that tabernacle that God designed with the children of Israel at Mount Sinai that traveled with them through all of their wilderness wanderings until they came in and possessed the land. And then it was set up at Shiloh, but then it was moved to Jerusalem. 
What a wonderful thought. But you see, it was a place in Jerusalem that you would go to. Not the whole city, but now the picture is that just this new Jerusalem comes down and in it are all priests of God. Go back to chapter 1 and verse 6. And he has made us to be kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. What a wonderful picture that you see. New heavens, new earth, no more sea, new Jerusalem coming down just like a bride. Now let's look at verses 4 and 8 in this context. Because all the bad is completely gone. Everything that you can imagine that was a part of this evil, sinful world is gone. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain. For the former things have passed away. You drop down with me now to verse 8. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, fornicators, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake of fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Here's what you notice. Everything unpleasant and bad in our time will be done away with. There will be no more mental and physical anguish. We've had mentioned two families that have been touched by death this week. If this world continues, there will be some more that will be announced from this place. Some of them will be your family. And it's very possible the announcement may be about you. But you see, once you get to eternity, there will be no more death. It's gone. There will be no more sorrow that is attached to death because death is gone. There will be no more crying. Some of you know the, the pain and the sorrow that goes with losing a person that's close to you and the tears you shed. Even our Lord did that. John 11 verse 35, Jesus wept. But he says, also will be gone will be the pain. You can imagine the difficulties that are gone. But you know, it's not just that. He says the former things have passed away. Everything that's associated with this corruptible world will be gone. And including that will be the wicked. You know, sometimes I get excited about going to a place. And when I get there, there's some really annoying people. Y'all know y'all never meet annoying people, but I do. You meet people who use foul language, and you just like, I don't want to be in their presence. I don't want to hear that. There are people who are mean. People who are rude. People who are ugly. But did you hear what he said? Those people are not going to be in heaven. In fact, listen to Galatians 5.19. 
Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murder, drunkenness, revelries, and the like of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. I don't have to worry about all that stuff being in heaven. It's not going to be there. Just like the sorrow, the pain, the anguish, it's going to be gone. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 5, For you know that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous, who is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of God or kingdom of Christ of God. It's just simply not going to be there. So I see a new heavens and a new earth, which Peter tells me righteousness dwells there. I see the new Jerusalem, the bride of Christ. And I see that there's nothing bad or evil or, you know, undesirable in that. Because the new creation, according to verse 5, is better. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. Focus, if you will, with me, first of all, the fact that it's God who speaks. The one who sits on the throne. And what does he say? I make all things new. Now, that's not a new idea because that's been mentioned before. You say have new things for a new people, but who are these new people? 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. We're a new people with a new name for a new place. What a grand thought. Now I want you to go back with me to Isaiah 65 again. I said I'd come back to that passage. Because Isaiah said here in verse 16, so that he who blesses himself in the earth shall bless himself in the God of truth. And he who swears in the earth shall swear by the God of truth. Because the former troubles are forgotten. And because they are hidden from my eyes. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered nor come to mind. You know there's a time in which a person, when they get something great, something better, forget about the old. Now occasionally you might think about it. But you know, you, you have an old jalopy. It doesn't run very well. You're having all kinds of problems with it. And then you're fortunate enough to go buy a new car. And when you do, you start driving. And all oh, this drives so good. You may think back, it's not like that old one. But your focus now is on the new, it's on the better. The reason why it doesn't come to mind, you don't want that old car back. You don't want to be broke down on the side of the road. You're proud to have what is new, what is better. No one who makes it to heaven and gets to eternity with the blessings that are there is going to go back and say, well, I wish I could go back to earth again. That's not going to happen. Not going to happen. 
Romans 8 and verse 18 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. And this is absolutely true and faithful. You can depend upon it because God said it. Hebrews 6 and verse 18, That by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. Then verse 6, we're almost done with the context, and I'm going to assure you the rest of it won't take quite so long. It is done. Look at verse 6. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. The will of God has been fulfilled. When you say it is done, it's done. The parallel to this is what Jesus said in John 19.30. He said, it is finished. I've completed it. Nothing else is, is there left to be completed. It's done. And now the water of life is freely available. You can go drink. You know, I enjoy watching some old movies and sometimes you find people searching for the fountain of youth. That elusive, mythical fountain that's supposedly somewhere in this earth. It's not here. The fountain of life is in heaven. Revelation chapter twenty-two, seventeen, And the Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And let him who hears say come. And let him who thirst come. Whoever desires, let him take of the water of life freely. It's there for the taking. Jesus in John 4 told the woman at the well, If you knew the gift of God and he who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him to give you, and he would have given you living water. You should have asked of him. He's the one that has the living water. The context sets the foundation for the very next statement. Here's the culmination. Verse 7. And the key word of this passage is overcomes. Overcomes what? This word overcomes is found 11 times in the book of Revelation alone. He who overcomes, in fact, with all seven of the churches, he who overcomes, to him I will give, and then you finish it out. It's a very important statement. I mentioned to you last Sunday morning that the word overcomes is the verb, the noun form is Nike. You know, the name of the tennis shoe, victory. In fact, if you go to chapter 15 and verse 2, and I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire, and those who have the victory over the beast, there's that word, they've overcome, they've won over his image and over Mark and over the number of his name standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God. It's victory. You've won. That's what he's talking about. Listen to chapter 17 and verse 14. Who is it that leads us in this victory of overcoming? 
These will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them, for He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who are with Him are called, chosen, and faithful. He's saying that Jesus, the Lamb, wins. In fact, He's the leader of our victorious battle. And someone might say, well, I win. No, 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 don't get it like that. The Lord wins, and you're with the Lord. Chapter 12, verses 10 and 11. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before God night and day or day and night has been cast down. And they overcame by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony and they did not love their lives unto death. We overcome. That's what the book of Revelation says. We overcome by the blood of the Lamb. Now those who overcome inherit all things. They are God's children. And we could spend a lot of time talking about it. But I want to now sort of bring this full circle and talk about the comfort that this brings. This book was written to a suffering church. I mean, when I say church, I'm talking about all the church that was scattered about in every place. By stressing that things will be better later on. When you're enduring difficulties, tribulation, it's hard to see the victory that's coming at the end. But that's what John, writing at the directions of Jesus, is trying to do for this suffering church. And you have to know that there's more than just this life. What if this is it? There's nothing else. Paul would put it like this. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most pitiable. You know, folks, if there's no Christ, if there's no resurrection of the dead, if there's no heaven, we're wasting our time. The truth is there is, though. These words are faithful and true. But we've got to realize there's comfort in these words. Peter would put it like this in 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning with verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again unto a living hope through the resurrection of the dead of Jesus Christ, or resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, that though now for a little while, if need be, you are grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold, though it perishes, though it be testified by, tested by fire, may be found in the praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Yes, we have this inheritance, incorruptible, undefiled, and, and I like that last phrase, reserved in heaven for you because it does not fade away. 
And then Paul would write in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 regarding this, and I want to capture those last words of verse 18. Therefore comfort one another with these words. When I read Revelation 21 and verse 7, I take great comfort in knowing that God will be our God and we will be His Son and eternity is a blessing that is to be found there. And I think it's easy to see why Revelation 21 verse 7 is a favorite. And I think back about what he's saying here about this inheritance, inheriting all things, and what the rich ruler asked, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? What do I need to do? Well, I need to focus on the future and make sure that I am a son of God, ready to enjoy that wonderful inheritance. Tonight, if you are not a Christian, we want to urge you, plead with you, beg with you, that you would do what is in your best interest, and that is to respond to heaven's call to be a child of God. And if you are a child of God struggling with sin in your life, and you need the forgiveness that God provides, then we will pray with you. Would you come while together we stand and sing?